Section 14 of History of New Brunswick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. History of New Brunswick by Peter Fisher. Section 14. The enrolled militia amount to about 12,000. They are divided into 23 battalions. The battalions are composed of six, eight, or more companies, according to local circumstances. The companies consist of one captain, two subalterns, three sergeants, and sixty rank-and-file, except flank companies, which are allowed four sergeants. Where districts are in remote situations, and not sufficiently populous to form two companies, but exceed the number of sixty effective men, eighty are allowed to be enrolled in one company. They assemble by companies two days in a year for drill, and by battalions or divisions for muster and inspection once or oftener, if the commander-in-chief thinks it necessary. An inspecting field officer is appointed to inspect the battalions at their general muster. He visits the different corps successively and reports to the commander-in-chief. He is paid a certain sum per annum, which is granted yearly by the legislature. The militia law is continually undergoing alterations and has not yet attained to that perfection that such an important branch of our provincial constitution requires. The last year, two inspecting officers were appointed to inspect the two great divisions of the province. There are abundant materials to form a good effective militia in this province. The youth are in general docile and orderly, and have a great aptitude to attain the requisite discipline. There are also a number of disbanded soldiers and other persons acquainted with discipline scattered through the country, so that there are few districts but where there are persons qualified to act as drills. The want of arms is indeed a great check to the military spirit, as nothing is more taking to boys when first put to drill than to have arms and although many requisites of discipline, such as marching, wheeling, etc., can be acquired full as well without them, yet nothing makes a young lad so alert as to have a musket put into his hands. To get persons to excel in anything, it is requisite first of all, if possible, to create an attachment and liking to it, and to get the youth fully engaged in acquiring martial discipline, it is a primary object to make it pleasing to them. If, therefore, the different corps were at their musters to be supplied with arms and a few rounds of cartridges, and taught to skirmish, it would act as the greatest stimulus to the youth, and would soon make an alteration for the better at the trainings, by making them a recreation and time of amusement, while it would make the militia familiar with the use of arms, which is at present altogether lost sight of. The writer is well aware that many arms formerly issued to the militia have been destroyed, and that this might again happen. But surely some method might be adopted to prevent such abuses, and still to furnish the different corps with arms while at drill, by forming depots for lodging the arms, and appropriating some of the fines to keep them in order. In scattered districts, one, two, or more companies' arms might be kept together, and in towns arsenals might be erected where two or three thousand stand might be deposited. Such buildings would not only be highly useful, but ornamental to the different places, 
and as there are but few serviceable arms in the province at present, some steps should be taken to procure a sufficient number, and not to let the country remain in its present naked condition. It certainly appears like an anomaly in our preparations for defense to expend time and money in improving our militia, and not provide the means of arming and making them efficient if they should be wanted. If, as the preamble to the militia law states, quote, a well-regulated militia is essential to the security of this province, end quote, it is equally necessary that the province should possess the means of arming that militia. If arms could not be procured from the crown, it would be advisable to appropriate a part of the provincial revenue for the purchase of a sufficient number to supply the militia in case of emergency, which could be either sold to the militiamen or placed in the arsenals and issued occasionally to the different corps as the government should think proper. Should the province ever be invaded, its defense will not wholly consist in defending fortified posts or its engagements with large bodies in open field, but by taking advantage of the natural fastnesses of the country, such as woods, deep hollows, hills, rivers, brooks, etc., with which the province abounds. This points out the necessity of having the militia trained to sharpshooting, and such exercises as will be beneficial in the hour of danger, and not merely taught a few parade movements, or how to receive a reviewing officer. The Indians in New Brunswick are fast declining, and although several attempts have been made to induce them to form permanent settlements and become planters, they still continue their migratory mode of life. The attempts that have been made to civilize them by educating their children have been equally unsuccessful. The Romish religion appears to be the most congenial to them, as well as to the French. This arises in a great measure from its outward pomp and external forms imposing on the uncultivated mind. They yield an implicit obedience to the Romish missionaries, who instruct them in religion, regulate their marriages, and censure or approve their conduct, and so successful have been their endeavors that but few depredations are committed by the Indians on property, although they are frequently reduced to the most extreme want. The Baron La Houtin, who has enumerated forty-nine nations of Indians in Canada and Acadia, names the following tribes as the original inhabitants of Nova Scotia. The Abenaki, Micmac, Canaboos, Mahingans, Opanangans, Sakokis, and Atechimins, from whom our present Indians are descended. As the customs, manners, and dress of the Indians have been often described, I shall not therefore swell this article by repeating old stories. Besides the conical cap, the blanket, leggings, and moccasins worn by all the tribes, the women among the New Brunswick Indians frequently wear a round hat, a shawl, and short clothes, resembling the short gown and petticoat worn by the French and Dutch women. The Indian language is bold and figurative, abounding in hyperbolical expressions, and is said to be susceptible of much elegance. To give the reader some notion of the manner in which these people conduct their conferences with each other, and with Europeans, I shall subjoin an extract of a conference, or talk, held at Quebec, 
with the Governor-General of Canada during the last American War. Quebec, 17 March, 1814 Thursday having been appointed for holding the council, the chiefs and warriors assembled, and after shaking hands with His Excellency as before, Newash, accompanied by his interpreter, again presented himself in the middle of the room and pronounced the following speech, or talk. Speech of Newash Father, listen. You will hear from me truth. It is the same as what the chiefs and warriors now here have to say. Father, listen. Open your ears to your children, to your red children that are in the West. They are all of one mind. Although they are so far off and scattered on different lands, they hear what I am now saying. Father, listen. You have told us by the talk of your warriors, twice, Father, that we were to fight on the flanks and in the rear of your warriors. But we have always gone in front, Father, and that it is in this way we have lost so many of our young warriors, our women, and children. Father, listen. The Americans have said, They will kill you first, Father, and then destroy your red children. But when you sent us the hatchet, we took hold of it, Father, and made use of it, Father, as you know. Father, listen. Your red children want back their old boundary lines, that they may have the lands which belong to them, and this, Father, when the war began, you promised to get for them. Father, listen. Your red children have suffered a great deal. They are sad. Indeed, they are pitiful. They want your assistance, Father. They want arms for their warriors, and clothes for their women and children. You do not know the number of your red children, Father. There are many who never yet received any arms or clothing. It is necessary at present, Father, to send more than you formerly did. Father, listen. At the beginning of the war you promised us when the Americans would put their hand forward you would draw yours back. Now, Father, we request when the Americans put their hand out, as we hear they mean to do, Knock it away, Father, and the second time, when they put out their hand, draw your sword. If not, Father, the Americans will laugh at us, and say our great Father, who is beyond the great lake, is a coward, Father. Father, listen. The Americans are taking our lands from us every day. They have no hearts, Father. They have no pity for us. They want to drive us beyond the setting sun. But, Father, we hope, although we are few, and are here, as it were, upon a little island, our great and mighty Father, who lives beyond the great lake, will not forsake us in our distress, but will continue to remember his faithful red children. This is all I have to say. This is from our chiefs and warriors. This is all they have to say. Newash then advanced to His Excellency and presented him with the black wampum and bloody belt. His Excellency the Governor-in-Chief then made the chiefs and warriors the following answer to the talks or speeches that had been addressed to him in their behalf. My children, I thank the Great Spirit for his protection of you on your long journey, and I rejoice to meet you at Quebec, the great council fire on this side the Great Lake. 
My children, you have freely and forcibly spoken your sentiments, and I am happy to have heard from your own mouths your thoughts, as I know on these occasions you always speak the truth. I am therefore delighted to hear my red children declare their attachment to the king, our great father, beyond the great lake, and to myself and my warriors. My children, I have opened my ears and listened with attention to what you have said. My heart was sore when I heard of the death of a great warrior. It still bleeds when I think of his loss, and the misfortunes my children have met with during the war, in the death of many a wise chief and brave warrior, and some of your women and children who are gone to see the great spirit before whom we must all one day appear. My children, I thank the great spirit that I see you in my own dwelling, and converse with you face to face. Listen to my words. They are the words of truth. You have always heard this from my chiefs, and I now repeat them. We have taken each other by the hand and fought together. Our interests are the same. We must still continue to fight together, for the king, our great father, considers you as his children, and will not forget you or your interests at a peace. But to preserve what we hold and recover from the enemy what belongs to us, we must make great exertions and I rely on your courage, with the assistance of my chiefs and warriors, to drive the big knives from our land the ensuing summer. My children, our great father will give us new warriors from the other side of the great water, who will join with you in attacking the enemy, and will soon open the great road to your country, by which you used to receive your supplies, and which the enemy, having stopped, has caused the distress and scarcity of goods you complain of. For I have never been in want of goods for you, but could not send them. My children, our success in the war must depend on our bravery and your young men listening to the advice of their chiefs. This you must always bear in mind. I recommend to you to open your ears when my chiefs speak to you, for they only wish for your good. Tell your brother warriors, whom I may not see, that these are my words, and that, though they are to destroy their enemies in battle, they must spare and show mercy to women and children, and all prisoners. My children, I have but one thing more to recommend to you, which you will not forget. You know that the only success that the enemy gained over us last season was owing to the want of provisions. There was much waste at Amherstburg. The consequence was that you and my warriors were forced to retreat. In future you must be careful of provisions, and use only what may be necessary. They are the same as powder and ball. We cannot destroy our enemies without them. My children, you will not forget what I have said to you. This is my parole to the nations. Here the black wampum is presented to Nuwash. Let them know what I have said. Tell them they shall not be forgotten by their great father nor by me. Take courage, my children. Be strong, and may the great spirit preserve you in the day of battle. Here the bloody belt is presented. After the interpreter had presented the belt to Nuwash, 
he, with several of the chiefs, chaunted parts of the war song. Under the cloud island, with this belt I go, by this my heart is strong, I shall have courage to die by the foe. Now I take hold of this belt, light as birds fly in the air, strong as my heart, and round I go, seeking to die by the foe. While this song was chaunting, several short speeches were made by the Indians. One of them said, There is our father, here is the belt, there you are. The great spirit presides, now we are one, and none can flinch. If we stand by our father, he will stand by us. Our path is in the west, the war shall brighten there, the sky begins to clear. The light falls on our lands, and soon again shall our women and children be on them. You sulks, you Chippewas, and all you of different nations, we are all one. We will fight them with our father, and never cease to fight while we have life, or until we have got back our lands. The names of twelve Indian chiefs, inhabiting the coast of Acadia at the time the French peasants submitted to the British government, will be found in the appendix to this work. Lands in New Brunswick are held in fee simple or free sockage. The grants are immediately from the crown. The subjoined table will show the fees on single grants, or where a number of grantees are included in one patent at present taken at the several offices. Table of fees on grants. Number of acres. 100, governor, including the warrant of survey, 4 pounds, 1 shilling, 8 pence. Secretary and registrar, 3 pounds, 7 shillings, 6 pence. Auditor, 13 shillings, 4 pence. Attorney general, 1 pound, 10 shillings, 10 pence. Receiver general, including purchase money, thirteen shillings four pence surveyor general two pounds commissioner of crown land five shillings total twelve pounds eleven shillings eight pence two hundred acres governor including the warrant of survey four pounds one shilling eight pence secretary and registrar three pounds seven shillings six pence auditor thirteen shillings four pence attorney general one pound ten shillings ten pence receiver general including purchase money thirteen shillings four pence surveyor general two pounds commissioner of crown land five shillings total twelve pounds eleven shillings eight pence three hundred acres governor including the warrant of survey four pounds one shilling eight pence secretary and registrar three pounds seven shillings six pence auditor thirteen shillings four pence attorney general one pound ten shilling ten pence Receiver General, including purchase money, one pound, four shillings, six pence. Surveyor General, 
two pounds. Commissioner of Crown Land, seven shillings, six pence. Total, thirteen pounds, five shillings, four pence. Four hundred acres. Governor, including the warrant of survey, four pounds, one shilling, eight pence. Secretary and Registrar, three pounds, seven shillings, six pence. Auditor, thirteen shillings, four pence. Attorney General, one pound, ten shillings, ten pence. Receiver General, including purchase money, one pound, fifteen shillings, eight pence. Surveyor General, two pounds, five shillings. Commissioner of Crown Land, ten shillings. Total, fourteen pounds, four shillings, zero pence. Five hundred acres. Governor, including the warrant of survey, four pounds, one shilling, eight pence. Secretary and Registrar, three pounds, seven shillings, six pence. Auditor, thirteen shillings, four pence. Attorney General, one pound, ten shillings, ten pence. Receiver General, including purchase money, two pounds, six shillings, ten pence. Surveyor General, two pounds, ten shillings. Commissioner of Crown Land, ten shillings. Total, fifteen pounds and two pence. On grants where more than one person is concerned, His Excellency has seven shillings per hundred acres, and the public offices have half the above-mentioned fees for each additional name, with the exception of the Attorney General, who has nineteen shillings and two pence for each additional name. The purchase money, which is a sum of five shillings sterling for every fifty acres above two hundred, payable to His Majesty, and called the King's Purchase Money, is included in the above scale of fees to the Receiver General. According to the Royal Instructions, a single man is entitled to one hundred acres of land, with an additional quantity, provided he can produce sufficient testimonials of his ability to cultivate more. A married man is entitled to two hundred acres, with an additional quantity on proof of his ability to cultivate more but no more than five hundred acres is allowed to be granted to any person by the colonial government. The method of laying out lots in this province, of a narrow front and extending a great distance back, is very inconvenient to the settler. Being confined to a narrow front when he commences, clearing, supposing, which is often the case, the land adjoining to be unoccupied, he merely makes a lane through the wilderness, not half of which will produce a crop, on account of its being shaded by the adjoining woods, which not only exclude the sun, but impoverish the land by drawing the nourishment from the plants to the adjoining trees. To obviate this, and many other inconveniences, it would be far better to lay out settlements where the face of the country would admit of it, in square blocks or parallelograms, to contain two ranges of lots, with roads at proper distances. The fronts of the lots to be extended and their length contracted. The lots to abut on the road and extend back one-half the depth of the block. The rear of the lots in one range abutting on the rear of the lots in the next range. 
or else the settlements might be divided into squares and sections after the method adopted by the United States in laying out new settlements, of which the following is a short outline. Their townships are laid out in blocks of six miles square, the whole area containing 23,040 acres. Those squares are divided into 36 smaller squares, or sections of a mile square, containing each 640 acres. The sections are numbered from right to left and left to right, as in the following plan. Six miles long, six five four three two one, seven eight nine ten eleven twelve, eighteen seventeen sixteen fifteen fourteen thirteen, nineteen twenty twenty one twenty two twenty three twenty four, thirty twenty nine twenty eight twenty seven twenty six twenty five. 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36. The sections are again subdivided into quarters and half quarters. A quarter section is half a mile square and contains 160 acres. The sixteenth section of each township is reserved to maintain schools and the sections 2, 5, 20, 23, 30, and 33 are sold in half-quarters. By this method, the limits of counties and parishes are accurately defined. The settlements are everywhere interspersed with roads, and each man's field, instead of a narrow strip of irregular figure and uncertain boundary, is a square laying compact and near a road, whose contents are always easily ascertained. The rectangular method of laying out settlements cannot always be followed on account of rivers, etc., which will cause gores and inequalities. But whenever it can be adopted, it offers many advantages. The estates of persons dying intestate are distributed analogous to the custom of Gavelkind in Kent. The heir at law of such intestate shall be entitled to and receive a double portion or two shares of the real estate left by such intestate, saving the widow's right of dower. The remainder to be equally distributed among all the children or their legal representatives, including in the distribution the children of the half-blood, and in case there be no children, to the next of kindred in equal degree and their representatives. Provided that children advanced by settlement or portions not equal to the other shares, shall have so much of the surplusage as shall make the estate of all to be equal, except the heir at law, who shall have two shares, or a double portion. End of section 14 Recording by Roger Moline